Today, open with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning. This is an incredible chapter. Jesus feeds the 5,000. At night, he walks on the water in a storm. He heals a bunch of people. And then, and then while teaching in a synagogue, Jesus gives a ministry-changing message. Now, his sermon title is, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. But then he has a subtitle, How to Turn a Megachurch into a mini-church, all right? How to turn a megachurch into a mini-church. Once they began to understand his message, the majority of his followers left. They left him. They stopped following the Son of God. Once we clearly understand exactly what he is asking of us, we have to make our decision. Will we continue to follow him? I'm going to give you one reason why you should make the choice to become a true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ until the day you die. Here it is. Follow Christ and live forever. Follow Christ and live forever. Yes, that's a pretty good reason to follow Jesus. You follow anyone else, they're not going to take you to heaven. You're not going to be able to live forever. Would you please stand with me as I read just the end of the chapter, John chapter 6, we'll drop down to verse 66. From that time, many of his, of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. May we pray. Father, I pray today for each one that is in this auditorium that they will examine their heart and confirm that they are a true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And if they have not yet been saved, not yet been born again into the family of God, if they don't have a living relationship with the living God, may your Holy Spirit do the work of convicting, of drawing, and may even in this hour they trust you. Now for each Christian... Help us to understand what demands you place on our lives if we believe and choose to follow Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. You know, last week I said we need to remember that every week in 2020, somewhere in the world, someone is literally dying for their faith. They're being beaten, they're being shot, they're being beheaded or burned to death for Christ. All the while, many Christians in America are fussing over the menial matters. Two Sundays ago, Nigerian pastor Andimi was martyred. On 20, January 21st, Boko Haram terrorist beheaded a Brethren Church pastor Andimi. Before he died, he said, I am at peace with death because Jesus is still alive. Amen. I am at peace with death 
because Jesus is still alive. As his wife Mary frantically tried to raise the ransom funds, she got the news of his death. And this is what his wife Mary said. Our faith is now stronger than ever. From the video released by Boko Haram, it was obvious my husband was ready to go and be with the Lord. He knew where he was going, and we are encouraged by his example. I know my husband is a great man of faith. We all need to stand firm. Even if you're going to be killed for your faith, one should never let go of one's faith. And this is what she said. I am grateful to God for our nine children. So look with me at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. What in the world did he say that caused a multitude of these shallow followers to quit? And it begs the question, if I hear the same message, what will I do? Will I quit? Will I go away? So here in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, thousands of, of women, thousands of children, multiplying a little boy's lunch. He took, he took five loaves and two fishes, and he, he blessed them and multiplied them and fed them all. And, and Can you imagine? He's pretty popular at this moment, isn't he? Uh, I mean, everyone got, got a free lunch, and they're, they're very happy about it. He's all but banished sickness in many of the towns of Galilee. So they love him. Jesus is now teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, verse 59. This is Peter's hometown. Uh, it's at the headquarters of his Galilean ministry. He performed many miracles uh, in the synagogue, in this town. Uh, in fact, he even healed the servant of the Roman centurion who built the synagogue. Now listen to what he says in verse 35. Here is the title of his message. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, why did the crowd come all the way from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee where they fed him and to come all the way up north? Well, they wanted more food. They wanted free food. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, you want food? Uh, you want bread? I'll give you bread. I and the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You're so concerned about the physical, you need to be concerned about the spiritual. You have a soul that is going to live forever somewhere, and you need to come to me so that you can have eternal life. You need to eat the bread of life. Three times he claims, I am the bread of life, verse 35. I am the bread of life, verse 48 and verse 51. By the way, this is the first time Jesus said the seven I am's of the Gospel of John. See, Jesus took the name of God, I am, that's what, that's what God spoke to Moses of the burning bush, and he took that and he added these metaphors. Let me show them to you. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know that every time he said this, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming deity. As Jesus is teaching here, he basically has three kinds of, 
of listeners, the true disciples, the false, and the antagonists who oppose him. And here's how the antagonists respond in verse 41. The Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. Verse 42, they said, is, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? And so you see on, on page two of your notes, you see believing and receiving equals eating and drinking. Jesus uses the metaphor of bread to describe himself. Uh, we do that today. Even today, we use metaphors very similar. We say things like, man, he devoured that book. Uh, read that article, then chew on it for a while. Oh, I can't believe you swallowed that lie. Uh, and so all of these are obvious uh, figures of speech. Uh, in a literal interpretation of the Bible, we understand the use of the figures of speech. For instance, when Jesus said, Herod, King Herod, he is a fox. Uh, Jesus was not describing a little red furry animal that, that goes out at nighttime, the one that was uh, hit by a car under the expressway last week, all right? He, he's not saying he's a literal fox. He's saying he's sly, uh, he's slippery, uh, he's, he uses tricks. And so when you read your Bible, we believe in a literal interpretation, but that uses figures of speech, and that is what he's doing here. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to live forever, Jesus says in this chapter, you need to understand two things. Number one, you need to understand that God offers the bread of life, eternal life, and he says, he says there is a divine pre-existence. Remember when Jesus said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? He said, you need spiritual food for your soul. And he said, I'm that spiritual food. Now, he, de he, de he defines himself as being pre-existent. What does that mean? Five times in one sermon, Jesus said, I came down from heaven. Every time, he is claiming to be an, a pre-existent person. He existed before he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. He already existed. He came down from heaven. And so uh, I think the repetition here is very important for us to get his message. Verse 33, the bread is he which came down from heaven. Verse 38, for I came down from heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven. 51, I am the living bread which cometh down from heaven. 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven. Do you get it? Do you get it? He said, I, I was up there. I was up there, but I came down here. Now, how many times have you heard people say, well, oh, Jesus is just a good teacher. Jesus is just a good prophet. Uh, Jesus is just a good role model. If you believe that Jesus is a good teacher, then you believe that he teaches what? Good things, right? He tells the truth. Because if he's telling lies, then he wouldn't be a good teacher. And so we have to examine, what did he teach? Well, five times he says, I came down from heaven. Jesus taught that he is the eternal God. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30, I and my father are what? One. If a man believes he is God, and he tells other people that he is God, then you only have three choices. And you older saints can help me out here. If a man says that he's God and he tells other people that he's God, 
What are the three possible choices? He is what? He is? He's a liar, or he is? A lunatic, or he is? Lord. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. That's the only three choices. If a man says today, well, I'm God, I speak for God, he, he's either lying, or he's a lunatic, that is, he's crazy, he's self-deluded, because no one is claiming that no one can be God today. And that's not going to happen because he'd have to perform the miracles and, and fulfill the prophecies. It's not going to happen. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If he is God, then let's accept him as God. Stop calling him just a good teacher. Stop calling him just a prophet. Stop calling him just a great example. No, no, no. He's much more than that. If you believe that Jesus came into existence at his birth, then you're believing in a false Jesus, a fake Jesus. Yes, his human earthly body had a beginning, but his person, his personality, his character, his being has always existed eternally. There in the box, Jesus has always existed as God the Son. Look with me in your notes there at John 3.13. Jesus said, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. If you got a pen or pencil, circle the words, no man. No man has ascended up to heaven. Would you say that with me? No man. No man. Say it again. We've got to get this. No man. No man has ascended up to heaven. No one has gone to heaven and come back. But Jesus said, Someone came from heaven to earth, who is that? The Son of Man. Every time you see another book, every time you hear someone tell about their story, they went to heaven and they came back, I want you to think about this verse. John 3, 13. Would you say that with me? John 3, 13. And remember the two words, no man. No one has done that. Here are two very popular stories, both false about two boys who went to heaven and came back. One after a car accident and the other during surgery. Now here's a report from January 2015. Quote, nearly five years after it hit bestseller lists, a book that purported to be a six-year-old boy's story of visiting angels and heaven after being injured in a bad car crash, is being pulled from the shelves by Lifeway and Tindo House Publishers. The young man at the center of the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, notice it says a true story, Alex Malarkey, he said that story was all made up. Today, Alex continues to refute his old lie. And he says he now believes in the supremacy of Scripture. Do you know he went on the Facebook group for the boy who came back to heaven and he posted the truth and they deleted it. They want, they want to believe the lie more than they want to believe the truth. And Alex Malarkey now says my old story is a bunch of Malarkey. Go figure. It's a bunch of malarkey. Uh, heaven is for real. Book, uh, movie, 90 minutes in heaven. I'm here to help you. I'm going to save you time. I'm going to save you money. 
Don't buy books about people that say they went to heaven or hell. Uh, don't watch movies about people who say they went to heaven because they're not true. They're not telling the truth. Now, when you're a pastor, people love to come to you and tell you their stories about the time that they went to heaven. And I smile and say, uh-uh, uh-uh. Too much pepperoni pizza, too many power drinks. Uh, didn't go to heaven, though. Given the choice, believe Jesus or believe the fantastic story you just told me, I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go with Jesus. Ah, oh, but what about the Apostle Paul? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, because the Apostle Paul wrote in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 11, that he went up to the third heaven uh, because he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I believe him. But listen to what he said. What I saw it is not lawful for man to utter. That means if someone did go to heaven and they came back, they are forbidden from telling it, from sharing it. No man, John 3, 13, but the Lord Jesus Christ, he came down from heaven. As the bread of life, there is a divine preexistence. As the bread of life, there is a divine purpose. We find that in verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me. That's the Father. Everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. If you would underline those words, everlasting life. It is God the Father who sent Jesus, the bread of life, into the world. Why? That all who believe may have everlasting life. All who believe may live forever. Jesus is fulfilling the plan of the Father. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall, listen, listen, they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We are doubly secure by Jesus and by the Father, triply secure, sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. So there is a divine purpose. Now there's a divine promise. Verse 47. God promises eternal life to those who follow Jesus. Verse 47. If you have ever learned evangelism explosion, this is a key verse in that gospel presentation. Verily, verily, truly, truly I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And if you would, circle the word hath. If you believe on me, you have present tense everlasting life. This bread gives what? It gives life. The Greek word is zoe, spiritual life, not bios, biological life. What kind of life? Eternal life, life that lasts forever. So how, how do we get eternal life in our physical bodies that are growing older each day, getting closer to our physical death? When we choose to become a follower of Christ, we are one with Christ. And the moment we are saved, our eternal life begins. Listen, you don't have to die to get eternal life. You don't have to die to get eternal life. The moment you become a Christian, present tense, if you believe on me, you have everlasting life. So that means if you get saved in 2015 and you mess up really big in 2020 and you think you lose your salvation, how long did your eternal life last? 
Five years? Well, then it's not eternal. Because eternal life is for how long? It's forever. So there's nothing I can do to mess up or forfeit or take away my salvation. If you have genuine salvation, you can never lose it. Because eternal life is forever. And forever starts the moment you receive Christ, not when you die. Does that make sense? That's what John 647, that's what Jesus is teaching us. Our spiritual eternal life becomes a physical resurrection of our bodies. Three times. Look with me at verse 40. Three times. I will raise him up in the last day. Verse 44. I will raise him up in the last day. Verse 54. I will raise him up in the last day. We will have a body like his glorious resurrected body. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. On Thursday, I had a funeral for a dear saint of God, Nancy DeBeau, 50-some years in full-time ministry. She's now with her Lord. She's now with her husband. And when I stood at the graveside at Limerick Gardens, I could look at Dave and Amy uh, in the eye and all the family and say, this is not Nancy DeBeau's final resting place. She's only here temporarily because the Bible says the dead in Christ, what, shall Rise first. Jesus is coming back, and all the saints of the church age, their bodies that are, are decaying are going to be reunited with their soul and spirit who is alive and awake in the presence of Christ and the saints of the ages. So God's offer of eternal life is the bread of life, but we have a responsibility to believe. Eat and drink. What is our responsibility? Well, sit around and, and hope it happens. No, no, no. We are commanded to eat this bread. In verse 34, the Jews said, give us this bread. Now, they're talking about physical bread. They, he, he, he just fed 5,000 men. He just fed thousands of women and children. He says, come to Christ. Over and over in the New Testament, you hear this word, come. Come. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 17. So I, I stand with Christ inviting you. Come to Christ. And then look at Christ, verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him. Everyone. Jesus did not just die for the elect. He died for the world. That's everyone. Now, the power of forgiveness is only applied to those who believe. Jesus says, anyone who comes, I will in no wise cast out. Seeth. Uh, it's a very strong word. It basically means to look at intently. It means to gaze. It means to study. It, it's not a passing glance. It's not a brief look. Uh, so what's our responsibility? Come to me, he says, and when you get there, experience me. Gaze upon me. Look at me carefully. See who I really am. And when you do, then you will believe. Believe on Christ. Verse 40, everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him hath everlasting life. He that believeth on me has everlasting life. Verse 47. And so the theme of this gospel is pretty amazing. It's believe on Christ. Believe on his name. It's about believing. John 1:12. as many as received him, to them gave he power to believe in his name. And so there it is. Come to him, look at him, believe on him. Now in this metaphor, 
Believing is eating the bread. And so look with me at verse 50 and 51. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's not enough to admire and call Jesus a great teacher. It's not enough to call him a wonderful role model. It's not enough to call him a prophet. You have to eat. You have to believe. You have to receive. This is our responsibility. And Jesus taught them, not only do you have to believe that he is the pre-existent God that came down from heaven, not only is he is the, the bread of life which gives eternal life, but, but look what else, verse 53. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Oh, wow. Wow, the, the Jews in that synagogue that heard him teach that day, you think they murmured at what he said about being the bread of life, and now what he says about, about drinking blood? For those of you who are joining me to read through your Bible this year, we just read recently Le Leviticus 17, which forbids Jews from drinking blood. And if they murmured back in verse 41, imagine what they're thinking now. But Jesus presses it even more. Verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. And just so we are clear, the Apostle John says, He said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now today, many churches, they falsely teach that the, the juice in communion becomes the literal blood of Christ. Not true. They teach that the bread, the wafer in communion becomes the literal flesh of Jesus. Not true. This is not even speaking of the Lord's Supper. Jesus did not institute the Lord's Supper until the night of his death. Uh, there he said, this do in remembrance of me. That's a message of remembrance. This is a message of salvation. This is the message of, of come to Christ and be saved and be born again. Now, just a side note, I want you to know that, that, that when God gave that vision to Peter, he, he, he said the Levitical law, dietary laws were not under that obligation. And so you're allowed to eat the seafood. You're allowed to, if you eat your steak rare, how, how many like that? Like so, all right. You're allowed to eat the steak rare with the blood. It's, it's okay. Uh, anybody like blood pudding, blood, blood pancakes? Anybody do those things? Okay, well, just forget that. <laughs> but you're allowed to. It may not be uh, to your palate, but, but you're not forbidden uh, to do so. But this was a stumbling block, block to them. What is he saying? Not only do you need to believe that Jesus is the Savior, but you also must believe in his sacrificial death. You cannot be saved without believing that he died and rose again. And so blood, blood is referring to his death. Uh, remember when they cried out, his blood be upon us. They're saying his death. 
is, is upon us. Now this synagogue, if you've visited Israel, you've been here. You sat in these benches. This is a third century synagogue in Capernaum, and it is built right upon the foundation of the first century synagogue, and this is where Jesus taught these words. Uh, he's giving us the location. He wants to know this is an actual historical event uh, that happened. Verse 60 and 61. Look what he says. This is a hard saying, and who can hear it? And Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it. And he said, does this offend you? Does this offend you? What's he talking about? The blood. Are you stumbling over the fact that you're going to have to accept my death? And the answer to that question is yes. That's why Paul said the cross is a stumbling block. There in the box, the Jews wanted a political Messiah to defeat Rome, not a personal Savior who would defeat sin. They might accept that bread part. Oh, but not this blood part. Too much. There it is. The sermon that took a mega church and made it into a mini church. Verse 66, the false shallow disciples walked away. They left him. I want you to hear the heart of Jesus. I want you to hear the broken heart of a Savior when he looks at his 12 disciples. In verse 67, he says, Will ye also go away? Will ye also go away? He is grieved. The people that he came to save, the people that he loves, they'd walk away from God. They'd walk away from forgiveness. They'd walk away from love. They'd walk away from salvation. So he looks at the 12. Are you going to walk away too? Peter answers. Now, now, this is several weeks before Matthew 16, several weeks before they went up north to Caesarea Philippi to the gates of hell. Peter made that great confession. This is before that. And look what Peter says. Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou, you alone have the words of eternal life. Peter says there's no eternal life in dead Judaism. There's no eternal life in religion. There's no eternal life in paganism. There's no eternal life in cults. There's no eternal life in atheism. In order to go to heaven, Jesus is not asking you to do some massive, sacrificial, charitable work. He's not asking you to get baptized. He's not asking you to torture yourself. He's asking you to follow him. And how do you do that? How does it begin? By believing. Believing that he is God. Believing that he came down from heaven. Believing that he lived a perfect life. Believing that he died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead and that sacrificial uh, death for you and me. He died in your place so that you might live forever. This is a belief that's genuine, that's deep, that's sincere. It's a belief that results in following. And so when you believe, you turn from sin to follow Christ. When you believe, you get baptized. When you believe, you come to church. When you believe, you read your Bible. When you believe, you give your tithes and offerings. When you believe, you forgive others. When you believe, you tell the truth. When you believe, you share your faith. And you do all of these things. And all it is is a, it's a thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You understand the difference? Instead of doing things to earn a ticket to heaven, 
doing things out of fear. Now we, we do things, we do good things out of love. What a different motivation. And many, many of us were brought up thinking, I got to work my way to heaven or God's going to punish me. And we need to abandon that false thinking and embrace the truth. Follow Jesus and live forever. Refuse Jesus and face an eternity paying the penalty of your sins in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Uh, this is the second death. Jesus says, follow me and you will live forever. Follow me and receive eternal life. Follow me and be born again into the family of God. So it's not about, it's not about joining Valley Forge Baptist. It's not about getting baptized. It's not about turning over a, a new leaf. It's not about giving money. It's not about good works. It's about faith in Christ alone. And so church family, there in your notes, and that's why, and that's why I follow Jesus. That's why I follow Jesus. And I hope that you will choose to follow him until the day you die. May we pray. Our Father, today we're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and his promise that if we believe in him, that we will have everlasting life. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, that he lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again, and he offers the free gift of salvation to all who believe. For we know that you sent your Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Christ might be saved. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, if you'd say, Pastor Wendell, there was a time in my life that I believed and received Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And there was a change in my life. God did a work, and I have assurance. I have a Bible verse that I know for certain that I can point at and say, this is what I believe. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And I have eternal life right now. If you have that assurance, if you have that peace, oh, so wonderful to be in the family of God. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, would you simply raise your hand as a testimony? I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian, a child of God. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You're here today and you say, Pastor, I, I think I will go to heaven. I hope I will go to heaven. But if I'm honest, I have some doubt. If I'm honest, I, I just raised my hand a moment ago that I'm going to heaven, but I'm not sure. If you sense the Spirit of God tapping on your heart, if you hear the inner voice of the Spirit saying, come, come today, then you can do what I did as a teenage boy and invite Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior and take away the doubt and take away the fear and replace it with peace and assurance for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is there anyone like that today? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. No one's looking around. I just want to ask you, 
If you're not sure that heaven's your home, and today you want to call upon Christ, I'll lead you in that salvation prayer. My prayer won't save you, but you can pray from your heart and make that decision that those 12 made, 11 of those 12, and be born again into God's family. Anyone at all, just simply hold your hand up high for a moment. I want to become a Christian. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to be born again into God's family. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone at all want to be saved? God bless you. Anyone else? I'm not sure that heaven's my home. I want to get it settled today. I want to walk out these doors knowing that Christ is in my heart. Would you pray with me right now where you're seated? Sincerely, earnestly. You can pray silently. God, hear the prayer of your heart. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Christian, may I ask you, are you, are you following Jesus? I mean, you follow Jesus, you get to live forever. Don't you think you should love him? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The first command is to be baptized. Don't follow afar off. Follow as close as you possibly can. Lord, may you bless in this invitation. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together, heads bowed, eyes closed as the pianist plays. Would you take some, a moment and do business with the Lord? Just pray to him now. In a moment, we're gonna be singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. What does that look like for you? Today, tomorrow, at school, at work, at home. To follow Jesus. Invite God to help you, to show you how you can better follow Jesus in your life. If you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Samuel 7. Uh, believe it or not, this is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament in regards to Bible prophecy. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God does an amazing thing here. He promises a dynasty to David. We call it the Davidic Covenant. And tonight we will discover exactly what that means and how we can learn from this chapter. So the title of my message is, When God Says No. When God Says No. Has he ever said no in your life? If you're breathing, then yes, you have had that experience when God says no. Please stand with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll see what we can learn, how God will help us through David's experience. Chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. That the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. 
And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, and thus saith the Lord, Shall thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelled in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can, we can find encouragement by being with your people in your house. We can be refreshed from the songs of the past and the songs of the present. Thank you for this time we can pray together and read your word together. And now, Father, I pray that the Spirit of God might expound to our hearts and minds an application of what David went through and what you are seeking to do in our lives. So give us honest and humble hearts tonight to hear, to believe, to apply to be strengthened in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, there is an old hymn that says, uh, What he takes or what he gives shows the Father's love so precious. Now, it's easier to sing, uh, What he gives us shows the Father's love. Uh, but it's a little hard to sing the other side of that. What he takes shows the Father's love. Uh, we usually think of love as, as something that is giving. But sometimes love involves taking away something that would not be best. And we understand that with children, don't we? But we are God's children. Can you think of some broken dreams that you've had in your life? Can you think of a, a time when you felt that something was the plan of God for your life, 
only to have it stopped and have God reveal to you in some way with a message, that's not my plan. That was your plan, but that's not my plan for your life. What you have planned is noble, but it's just not my plan for you. And that's hard to hear. And that's what King David experienced in chapter 7. It's not what he wanted to hear. No, how hard it is when God says no. And so let's take a look at the passage. First of all, we see David's peace. David's peace in verse 1 and 2, it came to pass when the king sat in his house, the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar. Uh, can't you almost see David and Nathan maybe sitting by the fire with their coffee mugs after a dinner conversation, enjoying that, and in David's new house that was built, chapter 5, verse 11, and over the fireplace, David could have written one word, and it would be the word, shalom, shalom, peace. All was at peace. Uh, there was peace at home. Uh, all was well. Uh, the kids were playing in the rooms around the house. Uh, the wives were happy. Remember, he had more than one. And so for there to be peace with multiple wives, you know, this is a really, a really special moment in his life. The fire crackled, and he couldn't help but reflect on all that he had been through. I, I mean, as a, as a shepherd boy, he was called in from the field, and he was anointed uh, with oil by Samuel the prophet. And, and then he went down into the valley of Elah with a, a sling and five smooth stones and uh, he left with Goliath's head and sword in his hand and, and then he got to marry the king's daughter was the son-in-law to the king and he went off to wonderful victorious battles against the Philistines and, and then he went through that dark season where for years he was hunted by King Saul the trips to the Philistine territory but now he's king now he is experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises, King of Israel. Yes, there is peace at home. There's peace in the kingdom. The Bible says that the Lord gave him rest from the enemies round about him. The military situation is stable. The ongoing with the battle with the Philistine armies is temporarily quiet, at least for a while. There's no giant uh, cursing, shouting blasphemies against God. And then there is peace in his heart. He has, he's at rest. The Lord gave him rest. Uh, David was at peace with God in his heart. As he was enjoying his, his cedar-lined home called King David's palace, he begins to dream. He begins to talk about his dream to Nathan. Nathan had become a close friend and counselor. And so I want you to look and, and see uh, David's got a plan. And the plan is, I want to build a house to God's glory. And so, uh, verse 2, verse 2, he, uh, he says to Nathan, See, now I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, turn back a page to chapter 5, verse 11. Five, chapter 5, verse 11 and Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedars and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. 
Do you know that for 100 years, archaeologists have been looking for the house of David, the palace of David, and it has only been in the last few years there have been a couple of locations, but now, now, they say they are 99% sure that they have located uh, the foundation of David's palace. That's kind of cool uh, to know that, that we have the spot and it fits geographically uh, in the right location. And so when you visit Israel now, it's, it's, it's an ongoing archaeological dig. Uh, they said we're just waiting for one more little piece and that would be something with, with David's name on a shard of, of pottery or something. But, but there, I mean, that 99% is a pretty high percentage. Uh, this is David's palace and David is there and he's with Nathan and, and he, he, he's there and he says... I'm, I'm in my house, but God, God's presence, God's Shekinah glory, that glowing cloud, uh, there's no house for God. And so his plan is to build a house for God's glory. Well, that's what a good friend says. Follow your dream and vice versa. Not only do I support you, but may God support you and bless you, David. And again, he's a prophet, so that's pretty good news. Now in December... Two months ago, we learned that, that David had brought the Ark of God to Jerusalem. That's where it now belonged. Uh, but it began to bother him that, that he's in a house, but the Ark of God is in a tent. And he's living in this beautiful house, clearly decorated very nicely. So he got the idea in his mind to build a permanent house, to build a building, a temple for God. Uh, here, all the furniture that the priests used would, uh, for worship could be kept there. And so he said it out loud. I will build a house for God. I want to build a temple in his honor. God's presence uh, uh, will now not dwell in a temple, but dwell in a house, a permanent house. It's clear that David had no ulterior motive here, no selfish ambition. He had no desire to make a name for himself. He only wanted to exalt the name of God in building this house. And so now we see a, a, a dream to honor God. It really is for God. Uh, did you ever have a time when you felt or sensed that God wanted you to do something? God wanted you to be involved in something? Think back in your life. Maybe it happened a long time ago. Maybe it happened at a camp. Maybe at, at a retreat. Maybe you threw a twig in the fire, made a commitment for God to be number one in your life, and you felt him directing you to do something. Maybe you sensed God moving upon your heart during a sermon. Maybe it was an invitation time. Maybe it was at the end of a year, the beginning of a year, the end of a decade, the beginning of a decade. You sensed God's leading during a sermon. And, and maybe while you were in college, uh, maybe you were reading the Bible and you prayed, God, I just want to do this for you. This is my commitment. This is what I want to do for you. Sometimes... The dream is not from God. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Now, both are noble. Both involve a great commitment. Both are honorable. But when it is not of God, it won't come to fulfillment, nor should it. And it's often hard to determine which it is. It can be very hard. In fact, uh, you will have friends like Nathan. And they're going to come along and say, go for it. They're going to come along and say, just do it. Do all that's on your mind, for the Lord is with you. Only to have God show you later that that was not his plan. There are many times in the Bible that 
good people, godly people, were wrong. They're wrong in their perceptions. They're wrong in their decisions. They're wrong in their judgments. I think of Eli. Eli sees a strange acting woman at the tabernacle, and he thinks she is drunk. He was wrong. Hannah was praying fervently. Uh, Samuel uh, came to the, uh, uh, David's uh, family, Jesse, and he looks at the fine physique of, of Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But he was wrong. He was wrong. David was convinced it was time to silence and squash Nabal, the fool. But he was wrong. And here is David and Nathan. They're chatting about building God a house. And Nathan says, just do it. God is with you. But the prophet was wrong. And he went home and God told him so. Have you ever thought that you were absolutely right about something only to discover that in the process of time? You were wrong. You were wrong. God's servants often mean well, but sometimes they lack the wisdom of God. In this case, a human plan must be corrected by a heavenly divine revelation. So you have... You have David at peace, and you've got David's plan, but now when God says no, verse 4, in verse 4, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan. I, I, just, I just wonder, why didn't God tell Nathan the night before? <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't we have saved a whole lot of trouble here? Yeah. God, God, told, God knew it was going to happen, right? But God waited. God waited. And so that very night, God speaks to Nathan. What does he say? Verse 5. Go tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? I don't think so. It's not going to happen. Uh, God's word is always God's will. God's word is always God's will. I could... I could, uh, uh, from my counseling office, could tell you story after story after story of people telling me, well, I, I know the Bible says that, but, but, I know the Bible says, but for me, for my life, for what I'm going to do, like God's going to make a special exception for you and, and uh, cancel out his eternal holy word for you, And so, Nathan has to come to David the next day and say, oh, King, we need to have a little talk. You remember our conversation last night? Remember we were sitting there by the fire, looking at the plaque, Shalom, having our coffee, adding a creamer, and talking about what you're going to do. And I said, go for it, and God is with you. Well... You live in this beautiful house and God lives in a tent. God talked to me last night. And David asked excitedly, what did he say? What did he say? And Nathan said, what did he say? Oh, king, he, he, kind, of, he kind of said no. <laughs> David asks, 
God, God said no to my dream? God said no to my dream to honor him? Really? Nathan says, like, absolutely no. You're not going to build a house, David. Dream shattered. God says, no, you cannot do it. You cannot build me a house to dwell in. God says, David, you're a man of war. You're a, you're, your heart is in the battlefield. You're a soldier, not a builder. And so our dream is not always God's will, right? Our dream is not always God's will. It was not God's plan for David to build a temple. It's a great idea. God's for it. He's just not for David doing it. It was a great plan on David's heart, but it wasn't God's plan. God was not going to let it happen. And in this case, he gave his word to Nathan, who passed it on to David. When God says, no, understand, uh, God's word is always God's will. Our dream is not always God's will. God has a better plan. God has a better plan. If the chapter ended at verse 5, uh, that would have been a crushing message. David, you're not going to build me a house. Uh, dream canceled. But God has a better plan. David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. What was that? You're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. What in the world does that mean? A dynasty. A dynasty. And your son is going to build me a house. And one of your descendants will be the Messiah, and he will rule forever. Now that's a wow. That's a double wow. But here is something that is so amazing about the promise that we call the Davidic covenant. I want you to notice how God tells David. I want you to see the humility of God the Father. Now we know all about the humility of God the Son. If you were with us last year in Philippians chapter 2, we took some, some, uh, some, some, we took some time, uh, a couple of weeks, to be able to go through Philippians 2 about the, uh, the, the condescension of Jesus from, from heaven to earth. It's called the kenosis passage. It's the emptying passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and, and who, who not being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and he came down. We went through all of those different steps that he came down, and, and he voluntarily gave up. He gave up divine attributes so he could take upon a human body to bring our salvation. So, so we're, we're familiar with, with the humility of Jesus Christ, but I have to say, this was, this was wonderful for me to see the humility of God the Father. When you list the attributes of God, I don't recall anyone ever saying humility. And yet here it is, right here in the Scripture. And so I want you to look at this with me tonight, uh, verses 6 and 7. Whereas I have not dwelled in any house since the time I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes. Have I asked any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people, Israel, saying, Would you build me a house of cedar? God says, Since I brought you out of the land of Egypt, we've been traveling around. 40 years wandering in the wilderness, traveling around together. I haven't needed a permanent house because we have been on the move together. I haven't asked you for a house, have I? 
My goal is to get you settled first in your permanent house. Do you see how God is speaking here? Do you see the humility? It's God, God the Father. And he said, I don't need a permanent house because we've been on the move together. You've been pilgrims. I have been your pilgrim God. Now, I want you to listen how God explains his better plan to David. Again, you see this tenderness. You see a kindness. You see a care from God. Uh, verse 8, you are God's choice. I chose you from being with the sheep. You are God's choice. Verse 9, you have God's presence. I have been with you wherever you go. End of verse 9. You have God's power. I made your name great in the earth. Verse 10. You have God's land. I brought you to the land of Israel. Verse 11. You have God's promise. I will build you a house. Verse 12 and 13. You have God's heart. I will let your son build my house. Verse 13. You have God's future. I will let you co-rule with Messiah. This is what he says. You are God's choice. You have God's presence. You have God's power. You have God's land. You have God's promise. You have God's heart. You have God's future. Tender. Tender. He says no, but look how he communicates it with such tenderness. I, I want to read to you from Ezekiel. You can write down the reference. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 24 and 25. Speaking of the future millennial kingdom. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given uh, unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Most Bible scholars would view this as, as David is a co-regent with Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is the king of kings, right? Right? He's king of kings. There's going to be nations in the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign. We have the rapture, seven-year tribulation. Jesus sets up uh, his millennial kingdom, a thousand years. He rules and reigns from Jerusalem, and the people of all nations come. Guess who is king over Israel? It's David. David is the co-regent. Jesus is king of kings, king over the earth, and David co-regent with him. So what is the Davidic covenant? It is God's unconditional promise to David that the Messiah will be his descendant and he will rule Israel forever. You say, well, what if he breaks one of the Ten Commandments? Is it forfeited? Let's go back to the, uh, the last slide, please. What if, what, if, what, if, what if he messes up? Is the, is the covenant canceled? He did mess up. You can say, well, he broke this commandment. And that, I can think of three just off the top of my head that he broke. It is God's unconditional promise to David that the Messiah will be his descendant and rule. He will rule Israel forever. Now, in the next slide, we see the keys to the covenant. It is unconditional. We understand that unconditional love. We use that term all the time. 
Hear it on the radio. Read it in books and articles. Unconditional love. It doesn't matter what you do. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, Jews in the land. Uh, verse 10. In verse 10, he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own. That is the Jewish state. That is the land of Israel. Your son will build the temple. Now that's Solomon. Now I want you to see something, what happens here. There's a double fulfillment. And so look with me at verse 12. And when, the, and when thy days be fulfilled, when your journey's over, and you sleep with your fathers, again the body is asleep, the soul and the spirit is with the Lord, I will set up thy seed, your son, that's Solomon, he'll proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He, Solomon, shall build the house for my name. Now watch the switch. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You just jump from Solomon to Messiah. Messiah will rule forever, not Solomon, Jesus. Why Protestants and Catholics got Israel wrong? It's right here. It's right here. To say that the Jews have been replaced by you and I, the church, you call God a liar. I'm not going to call God a liar. God's not a liar. If it's unconditional promise, he didn't cancel it ever. The Protestants, most Protestants and Catholics, they got Israel wrong. God made an unconditional promise to the Jews through Abraham. Now it's confirmed through David. So the unconditional promise, and this is what we have, death cannot cancel it. In verse 12 and 13, he says, you're going to get old, you're going to die. Promise is still good. Uh, sin cannot destroy it. Some of your descendants, verses 14 and 15, they're going to mess up. And by the way, a lot of those kings messed up, didn't they? I'm going to spank them, I'm going to chastise them, but sin cannot de destroy it. And then time will not end it. Uh, verse, uh, verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. He repeats it. Yes, God has a better plan. David, you can't build my house, but you can have the joy to know that your son will build my house, my temple. And David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, and Messiah will come through your lineage. Okay, so what can we learn from all this? What, is, what does this mean to us? Because most of us here aren't Jewish. There are a few Jewish Christians here. Uh, but most of us are Gentiles. We're in the church age. What do we learn from this? When God says no. When our dreams are broken. When God says no, sometimes it is not because of discipline. It is not because of rejection. Uh, is, is David doing anything wrong at this moment? No. He's at peace at home, peace in the kingdom, peace in his heart. He is right with God. He's writing psalms. God says, no. That doesn't make sense to us. It's not because of discipline. God's ways are just not our ways. God may simply have a different plan than what we think. He may have a different plan in life, a different plan in marriage, a different plan in in work, a different plan in service, a different plan in friendships, a different plan, and so on, and on and on. Uh, when you're young, you can try and map out your life. 
You try and map out your life. But God, but God will interfere with your map. It's going to mess up your map. He's going to put some detours in your map. He did mine. He's going to change it all around. Don't be surprised when it happens to you because it happens to all of us. When God says no, sometimes it's not because of discipline. And sometimes it's just not his will. It is just not his will. God doesn't call everyone to build temples. Some are soldiers. And God says it won't be, it won't be you. It'll be your son. It'll be Solomon. It can be hard to know that, that God is going to use someone else to do what you wanted to do. That ever happened to you? I wanted to do that. God says, nope. And someone else gets to do it. Now, now, here's what's really important for all of us. I want you to see what David's response is in verse 18. Verse 18. Verse 17, according to all these words, according to this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. What does he do? Then went King David in, and we don't know where he went. Maybe he went home. Maybe he went into the tabernacle. He went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? This is another, this is another wow moment. Maybe David went home. Maybe he's in the tabernacle. He has his little chat with God. Lord, who am I that you would bless me? Look at the gratitude that flows out of his heart when God says no. Verse 19. And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, I knowest, knowest thy servant. He is thankful. Dream or no dream. I am blessed by God. Give it or take it away. I will say like Job, blessed be the name of God. And I think this is part of why he is a man after God's own heart. Now Paul said to the Romans, he wrote and he said, does the clay pot say to the potter, why did you make me like this? That's ridiculous. We're the pot. Ever say to God, I don't like the way you made me. I don't like my lot in life. Now, he's the sovereign Lord God of the universe. He's the potter. We're the clay. We're the pot. Get over it. Accept it. Accept God's will. And so in our walk with God, we need to listen closely from day to day. Not just go back to some decision way back. Uh, well, that's the way it's going to be forever and ever. I mean, that's what I said way back then, and I'm just not changing. We need to regularly ask God, is this your plan? Is this what I'm supposed to do? If it is not, Lord, give me a humble, sensitive heart to listen, to obey, to change, to adjust 
to your will, to your plan. Okay, when God says no, when dreams are broken, support God's better way. When dreams are broken, support God's better way. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, do you know what David did? David said, okay, God, if I can't do it, can I, can I help get things ready? And so he, he gets the stone cutters, the foreigners that live in Israel, and he cuts the stone, and he brings them in. And then he gets the wood, and he brings it in. And he gets the iron, and he brings it in. Let's make the nails, and let's, and let's get it all prepared. God gives him the blueprints. God is the architect of the temple, literally the architect of the temple, and he gives it to David. And so there's going to come a day, and, and, and David gives it all to Solomon. Here are the plans. Here are the building materials. Here it, here it is. And guess what happened? Guess what happened in, in the, just the last few years? Archaeologists have been digging, and they've been finding artifacts from the first temple. Now, we've got a lot of artifacts from the second temple, uh, the temple that uh, was increased by, uh, by Herod, uh, built by, you know, uh, uh, after they came back from captivity and, and Zerubbabel's temple. But I'm going back 3,000 B.C. I'm sorry, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. And what happened is they found that a couple of ways, uh, just in the last couple of years, they had opportunity with the Muslims to do some archaeological dig on the Temple Mount, first time items from the first temple were found and then the other items were found because back in 1999 the the Muslims who controlled the temple mount they were digging and they dug out 400 truckloads and in the dark of night they dumped it in a in a dump trash pile in the Kidron Valley and so the Jewish people have been going over there. Americans have participated, sifting through, and they have found artifacts from both the first and the second temple. Now we get to see it. Go online. You can see uh, the different artifacts uh, that are there. So what happened is, is David, he supports God's better way. And then secondly, when dreams are broken... My best reaction is cooperation and humility. My best reaction is cooperation and humility. Again, God does not call everyone to do great things like building temples. David couldn't build the temple, but he does call everyone to be faithful. He does call everyone to be obedient. And maybe you are conflicted over broken dreams. High hopes of the past have been dashed. And for some mysterious reason, God said no. He said no. And how quickly age takes over. Dr. James Dobson put it so beautifully. About the time our face clears up from acne, our mind gets fuzzy. Just about the time we figure out life, we're too old to pull it off. So we have to turn it over to Solomon, the Solomons in our lives. So David, his reaction is cooperation and humility. He prepared the building materials for the temple. And you know, that, 
that took, that took humility. That took cooperation. I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that for God. Why would he let me do that? I'm a man after God's own heart. I wrote 75 of the Psalms. There's only 150 of them. A word to everyone over 40 at Valley Forge Baptist Temple. God is calling you to be like David. God wants you to say to our young people in our church, I am for you. I am not going to criticize you. I am going to pray for you. I am going to support you. May God be with you. So the rest of us, 41 and up, let's not be grumpy old men and old women and cross our arms and say, well, we didn't do it like that when we were teenagers. <laughs> we didn't do it like that when we were teenagers. Oh, you don't remember what you did when you were a teenager, and if you did, you wouldn't want to tell anybody about it. <laughs> remember what Dr. Dobson said. Amen? So can you identify with David? God says no. Dream is broken. Are you willing to take your handful of dreams and set them at the altar? Let God do what he wishes. I really believe God's plan is better than our plan. And that's the word surrender. Surrender. To some, God says yes. To some, God says no. But in either case, his answer is best. He's God. His answer is best. Why? Because God's answers, while surprising, are never wrong. He's never made a mistake. A lot to learn from King David when God says no. Father, thank you. Thank you for our time to be in your house and to open your word. Thank you that our hearts and minds can, can go back 3,000 years to to men and women who were living life and loving you and, and having the same victories and sorrows and joys and disappointments that we have. So, Father, give us a spiritual mindset. Help us now to reflect deeply upon the truths that we discern from David and Nathan and, and how you walk them through this with such kindness and tenderness and care and, yes, humility. Now, Father, help us. Help us to walk in the footsteps that you have shown us. Give us a heart that will cooperate and encourage and love and build and not tear down. Lord, help us to love the next generation in our church family and help us like Aaron and her who held up the arms of, of Moses, that together we work as a team, we work as a family, uh, we work as a New Testament church because we are the pillar and ground of your truth. 
So I pray whatever trial, whatever broken dream, whatever uh, know that your people are sensing tonight, that they might find encouragement that you have a better plan. It may be disappointing, but it is better, and we trust you, and we trust your word. Bless our time tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May we stand together, heads bowed, eyes closed. As you consider the words of the song we'll sing in a moment, have thine own way, have thine own way. As you, let's, let's just meet with the Lord for a moment and let God have his way in our life. Is there something tonight you've heard that you can apply in your home, with your friends, in our church, in your ministry? Does there need to be a surrender tonight? Something you've held on to? A disappointment? A resentment? God makes no mistakes. And tonight he's letting you know with tenderness and care and love and concern, he wants you to take the next step, walking in his will, loving him, having a grateful heart for his abundant blessings upon us.